0: Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's book. Hey, welcome back. As always, I'm Chris Pullman bringing to you, my listener, chapters from this, my second science fiction novel, my second novel, Martian Reporter, Humanity's New Hope. Today I'm going to try and get through two chapters during my lunch break because they're both a little bit shorter. First one is called The Soul System. It's really more of a narrative uh, explaining a little bit more about how Earth mars and uh, the moon called luna exist with each other how humanity between these three planets interacts so that's where we are there's no dialogue it's just really um i guess almost an exposition (laughs) so uh please bear with me as it, it i think it does help just get you into Kind of the mind space of where the story is. So, the soul system. Commerce flowed between the planets in a constant cosmic dance. From the time of the first colony on Luna, space lanes had been set down. They wove this way and that with the orbits of the three Terran worlds transporting the very lifeblood of human civilization. By James Hall's time, Each of Earth, Luna, and Mars were self-sustaining as far as basic needs went. Even so, each planet lent itself to certain productions better than the others. Earth, the largest of the three, still provided the biggest pot of raw resources. Even so, Luna's history as a target for meteors and comets had made it home to many exotic materials and ores. Much in the same way Mars was simply more plentiful in iron by nature of its composition. As well, the lower gravity on Luna and Mars made spacecraft easier to manufacture and launch into orbit. Of course, the cradle of humanity, Earth, still did its best to compete in every industry. Earth humans always felt as though they must continually prove themselves. It remained the technological hub of the Terran triune system. Mars became a hub of commerce and banking. Where once the Cayman Islands, or Switzerland, had had been considered the best safe houses of money, now banks and investment houses on Mars served. No sooner had colonists begun arriving to build the first permanent settlements than new banks, brokers, and capital investment firms appeared. In this way, some of the immigrant poor made themselves into the Martian rich. Luna, on the other hand, never achieved such prosperity. It became a relaxed port of call. As many industries as it has, a monetary hub, it has never been. Luna likewise has parallels on Old Earth. Amsterdam, Cuba, and other places where less common vices flowed free, lost at least some of their trade to Luna. For not only did low gravity offer an enhanced experience with many substances, but also For other pleasures of the flesh. Many faiths tried to make a stand on Luna in her early days, saying this far but no further. But Luna's people and her government saw early on where their government and planet could flourish. The old laws of Earth needn't extend to Luna, they figured. So what worked they kept, and the rest they replaced. The Triune Terran government has grown comfortable with its interplanetary relations, from earth flows technology from luna products of pleasure and manufacture and from mars the funds for both the monopolies of the past those commercial conglomerates with a heavy hand in every pot tried their best to extend their influence in truth the reason for their existence made perfect sense spread out enough and one market failure was survivable but they had grown too big and powerful for their own good Soon after the exile, the Terran Congress enacted laws that broke up the conglomerates, largely in self-interest for the stability of the government. The Congress men and women were branded the new trust-busters, depicted as breaking the chains from humanity. And the experiment, to the surprise of most, has worked so far. No company was allowed a majority share of another if it fit the label of capital firm, one whose purpose was to own other industry. The end result was multiple firms all holding stakes in the same company. That which had previously owned Kellogg's cereals exclusively now shared control of Post and vice versa. What's more, private investors stepped up and moved in on market share vacated by the new laws. It bankrupted some, but most were raised up. Overall, it was a time in which the middle class expanded at an exponential rate, Breaking monopolistic control had a cascade effect. As individuals owned more and more of companies, companies became more and more accountable to consumers, who were now also stakeholders. As a result, product quality went up, even as price went down. Economists guffawed, saying it would never work, as lower prices meant people getting paid less, and so less would be available for them to spend. What many did not factor in was that even as work pay went down, share dividends increased based on demand. Private ownership of companies counterbalanced lower wages. What's more, companies no longer had the clout to lobby the government as they once had. They were not billion trillionaires any longer, but billions of people worth tens of thousands. Government's relationship to the people changed More of the everyman were elected, those in touch with the real needs and concerns of fellow humans. Government went from hate-filled rhetoric to one of discourse and compromise. Factions still bonded together, but politics changed. After just a decade of such government, universities across Earth had to throw out their political science curricula and begin anew. The landscape of humanity had changed. Even now, humanity lived... The way humanity lived changed. With so many dead after the War of Noble Cause, the War of Insurrection, humanity spread out as it rebuilt. As humanity recovered, so did Mother Earth. Smaller towns and cities vanished, nature reclaiming what was once its sole domain. Less people meant less pollution and drain on natural resources. In a few decades, two centuries of environmental harm was halted. And began to heal. New, cheap building materials that were carbon neutral were plentiful now that their main consumer, the TDF, was gone. SNN Industries flourished in this climate, quickly becoming the industry leader in, among other things, sustainable construction and manufacture. It was also the primary creator of the original lunar colony ships. SNN thrived on more than just these two industries, though. Having been founded from the merger of NAR Defense and STAWS Industries, SNN also produced governmental vehicles and maintained the sole archive of weapons plans. True, the government had rid itself of the last standing Terran army with the exiles. It still kept discrete security forces around its own buildings, however, which necessitated a level of weapons manufacture. Further yet, SNN not only provided space vehicles for colonists, They expanded with them. Soon after the first permanent colonial settlements on Luna and Mars, SNN built bases of operation on both planets. Thus becoming SNN became, pardon me. I don't edit these by the way. (laughs) I figure it's more authentic if I don't. Thus becoming SNN became a main employer and supplier to the colonists and never became a majority producer of anything per the new trust laws, but always hovered right at the line. In this way, SNN's rise as an innovator of relatively near-light-speed transport via more efficient El drive driven ships came as no surprise, nor did their expanding share of government contracts, which never were subject to the new trust laws. The Department of Censorship almost immediately became a main contractor of SNN's services. Some criticized SNN for throwing in with the censorship, though their CEO and CFO replied that it was just good business. And so humanity spread and diversified in the solar system. As of late, mining expeditions and stellar companies have begun taking permanent root in humanity's economic fabric as they seek out resources from the atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn, as well as minerals and ores from their moons from Mercury, from Venus, Uranus, and Neptune. It is hard work in harsh, dangerous conditions, but even so, there are always people willing to try their luck in such ventures. Asteroid meteor and planetary mining, of course, had been going on for centuries. The most profitable sources of stellar minerals lay closest to the winding trade routes. Even so, mining has spread throughout the sole asteroid belt and to near-Earth bodies. Companies have over the last few centuries had to pay death benefits for whole crews. However, when one shipment can retrieve billions or trillions standard worth of raw and exotic materials, both miners and companies see the risks as acceptable, especially when the crews take home large shares of the profit. Technology has, as a matter of course, improved drastically from the early days at the end of the 20th and dawn of the 21st century. Biological personal computing devices are now the norm and incorporate both decentralized storage and computing, as well as the capabilities of quantum computing technology. Not only this, but adaptive artificial intelligence, DO engines by a crude early 21st 21st century title, have become commonplace much as the philosopher Watson foresaw in 2125. The ever-dreaded computer apocalypse never came about for the simple reason that computers, even at this date, can only do what they are programmed to. Truly then, the next great adventure for humanity, having collared its own solar system, is to reach out for the stars. While using near-light travel, humanity could overtake many of its old unmanned space probes in short order, their speed is still not sufficient to catapult humans to even the nearest neighboring star. If such physicists as Vance Krieger and Heinrich Soto are to be believed, though, humanity is on the very cusp of being able to do so. And with astrono- astronomers such as the renowned Galilei Rothschild and Avery McCall having proven the existence of sentient life in humanity's local galactic cluster, such is a tantalizing draw to push out of humanity's own solar system. Humans, though, must remember what their race is capable of. Too recently and too often in their history have they subjugated one ethnicity or another for financial gain, downplaying them as simple for for justification. What, then, will humankind do when they meet these alien beings? What if they present as drastically different from Terrans? Will humans, as a matter of course, Take them as less advanced, and so just another resource to be taken advantage of? Will humans take what they want from such alien planets without recompense or afterthought, leaving them destitute? Or has humanity truly matured as a race? For the moment, humanity thrives. It has outgrown its cradle, and moved out into its stellar home. It now plays among the planets, looking still outward toward the stars. The planets beneath humanity's feet continue turning in their orbits. Their politics continue to churn. People go about their days, and life goes on. If humans know nothing else, they know this. Humanity survives. The next chapter is using LNH. This picks up uh, still down in the basement of L&H with Hank and Jim. How's this pile of antiques gonna be of any help? Hank asked as he and Jim looked around the hidden sun basement of L&H. The subterranean bunker was indeed filled with what seemed relics from another time. Looks can be deceiving, Hank, Jim said as he approached what looked like a long-wave ham radio. With the wormhole communication networks between Earth, Luna, and Mars, such a device could communicate with someone on any Terran planet, at least in theory. However, to get a signal to Luna or Earth, it would need to be bounced and redirected, so it would be picked up by just by one of the two interplanetary wormholes. Feeling along the edge of the large, box-like device, James found what he had been looking for. Depressing the switch and twisting slightly, As he had on the hidden door leading to this place. He heard latches release. Swinging the ham radio facade aside revealed a biocomputer that seemed to be only a few years old. Did Eric ever come down to the beer cellar? He asked Hank over his shoulder. Now that you mention it, Hank said, trailing off, I suspect all of this equipment was built to resemble outdated relics in case this place was found by the wrong person. The details on the facade are impressive. I'd be willing to even bet, Jim said, half-closing the ham radio, flicking its power switch. The box emitted a hum as light slowly came on and brightened, a soft, static crackle coming from its speaker. Ooh, he whistled a lot of detail to this. And you never came down here, huh, Hank? Nope, the man replied, perusing some of the other communication equipment around the room. There were a few tube-looking monitors, several tower computers, and a few receiver boxes apparently meant to resemble code scramblers. Eric, who did you fear would find this? Jim murmured to himself. Once more opening the radio facade wide, he brought the computer within to life. The screen, coming on instantly, showed a still active communication. What have we here? Jim asked the screen. Several windows popped up, as they had when Eric had set up the con line he used to talk to Tim at NMU. A second later, a chat window appeared with a woman's face center screen. She stared at him. Even through the connection, Jim could feel her studying him. On the edges of his vision, he could see the connection information. The woman's side of the link originated on Earth. Past that, he couldn't tell much. As was his signal... Hers was being scrambled and bounced around the local planet now. "'Who are you?' the woman finally asked. Despite his best efforts, he could pull no information on the woman forward in his mind. "'My name is James Hall. Greetings.' His mind raced, trying to pick up on any nuance, any clue as to who this woman was or how to respond to her. "'How did you come to be on this channel, James?' she asked. James felt a familiar sensation, one he hadn't expected to feel in reality. I found it underneath LNH here on Mars, he thought back at her. The woman remained silent for nearly a minute. As Jim had begun talking to her mind, she had thrown up mental shields blocking everything but thought speak. Who are you? Finally came the reply. I already told you, he thought back. Not good enough, she replied. I am the beginning, the end, the one who is many. I am the remnant of the TDF. The woman once again sat immobile and silent. Thought speak was such an interesting form of communication. The progenitors hadn't had enough time to study it in depth, but did know enough to understand that it ignored physical differ- distance. They had hypothesized that two people clear across the universe could instantly communicate by thought-speak. This exchange, despite the wormhole, seemed to substantiate such hypotheses. You are not the last, she thought. Her tone managed to come through. I am, right now. Jim inclined his head slightly. What about Eric? He has gone. "'What are you doing with the connection on this channel?' Jim asked, cocking an eyebrow. "'That's for me to know for now. We are done for the moment,' she said aloud, reaching for the screen. The image went black. "'What was that all about?' Hank asked from where he had remained standing. "'I would have to say,' Jim replied, "'that this equipment hasn't just been sitting idle down here all these years.' I was actually referring to you and her just staring at each other the whole time. Ah, Jim said, realizing that they had seemed to merely be staring at each other. He briefly explained. And she was on Earth? Hank asked. So it seems. <laughs> Hank grunted. Dad made it sound like there were no more nanetics on Earth. There shouldn't be, Jim replied mind suddenly caught a thought. In his undergraduate term paper, one of the sources he found had listed casualties from the attack on the TDF supplies at Sheboygan Spaceport almost 500 years ago, at 50. However, now from the minds within him, he knew that figure to be 13 too high. Eric had added 13 names to the list of dead that day. Why? Within his mind, it was as if a latch of his own suddenly released. Something pulled him inward. Hank, uh, I'll need a few moments. Jim barely heard him acknowledge as he slipped into his mind-space version of NAR Defense's conference room. There at the table were James and Andre. Before them was a golden orb. Its surface danced and seemed to move. Around its widest part were the words and the truth shall set me free. As Jim walked up to the table, he could see what appeared to be the multi wondrous shell James had held previously, now split in four. In its current state, it resembled more the seed pod of an otherworldly flower. They looked up at Jim. What happened? he asked them. We're not sure, James said. "Dandre was helping me mull over more ways to try and get into this thing when it just fell open. You just figured something out. What was it? Well, Jim said, you remember the attack on the spaceport before you guys left Earth? We do, rumbled Dandre. Only 37 people died that day, Jim replied. James looked at him curiously. Any record I've ever been able to find listed the number at 50, he continued. It it was a ruse, and one well hidden. The two seemed momentarily confused. Then, suddenly, they illuminated by an inner light. They appeared to glow as a slight haze formed around them, as if a layer of dust was beginning to lift and float free. Only 37, James said, confused. Oh, that's, um... D'Andre added, that's as 13 too few. The dust began to swirl about them, the glow intensifying. A ruse, James murmured. It makes sense, he added, the cloud exploding outward, glimmering as it fell to the ground. One meant to hide that information. From whom, D'Andre asked, as the same happened to him. Chaos, James Hall said. Both men looked at at him. Eric was hiding it from chaos. And the only way to do that was to hide it from all of us, D'Andre finished. He had the same sort of access to our minds and our abilities as Eric did. If any of us other than Eric knew, he would have known. But how could he have hidden such an effort, James asked. Chaos would have had to have been pretty deeply involved in something himself to miss such an effort, Don Jay replied. Like what? Jim asked. What would have taken that much of his concentration? He would have had to have been piloting, James replied. You mean in control of Eric's body, Jim asked. Don nodded. Makes sense. It'd probably be the one thing Chaos would actually go for willingly. He'd jump at the chance, give him the ability to try to start putting things back together for himself. There was an audible metallic crack. They all looked at the floating golden orb. Around its vertical circumference, a seam was now visible. James, Jim said. How long would it take you to put something like this together? What we're seeing here. The globe. And all of it. Decades, at least. Possibly into centuries, he replied. The seam on the globe became more pronounced. What would Chaos be able to do with that much time and control, Jim pressed. A whole lot, Dondre answered. The seam widened. And if Farrick was focusing that much on hiding what he was setting in motion, probably hide as well what Chaos was doing for him. From all of us. The two halves spread further apart. It seemed as though they were sure to fall away at any second. He could have set up a substantial power base by now. Something he's sure starting to tap into at this point. Eric would have known he was giving such a gift to Chaos, right? Jim asked. He would have, and so he would have used what he had and built it up as strong as he could. James replied. The golden shell dropped noisily to the table, revealing a pearl within. On its equatorial surface was scrawled, to every reason a time, to every time a purpose. So that woman was, is, part of Eric's long plan, Jim said. The pearl gave off a soft glow, and every time we figure out another part of his plan, this peels off a layer. figures in the middle, D'Andre asked. Something that's been hidden for a long time, James replied. For some reason, an image of a cabinet, a hidden place, popped into Jim's mind. As it did, he allowed himself to return to the physical world, knowing Jim and D'Andre would continue to consider the ramifications of what they had discussed. How long was I gone? he asked Hank. It was still difficult for him to judge real time compared to time spent in his main mind space. Uh, perhaps a minute. Your eyes were darting around behind your eyelids like you were in REM sleep, Hank said. I was just, uh, thinking through a few things. That woman must be part of what remains of the TDF. But how are they hiding their presence? The Walker report was fairly exhaustive in its search for any trace of the TDF. The Department of Censorship's files certainly saw to that. Aside from heroes, that committee had at their disposal the largest cache of TDF-era artifacts in existence. And why would they still be hanging on this long? It would make sense for Eric to keep elements of his long plan alive here on Mars, but on Earth as well? Hank, Jim said, a thought occurring to him. Did you ever know Eric to have gone off-planet? No, he rumbled. Dad never mentioned that he did either. Then again, never mentioned that he didn't. I don't know what the woman on the screen was up to. I don't know if she was an or not. She certainly didn't feel like it. Guess we'll find out when she gets back on, Hank said. You gonna be down here for a while then? Yeah. Probably, Hank. And that is the end of today's second chapter Using LH. Alright. Thank you for listening to me this week. If this is your first time listening to the podcast thank you for tuning in thank you for downloading listening streaming however you're doing it if you want to hear more or if you're a return listener you can of course find me on itunes or your favorite podcast application just search for chris reads book you can also search by name by my name chris pullman that is p-o-h-l-m-a-n if you don't feel like going to all that trouble (laughs) to try and remind remember all that you can head over to my website narclaninc.com that's n-a-r-c-l-a-n-i-n-c dot com go to the podcast section of the site the chris reads book page there i have the raw mp3s of all my previous episodes including the most recent one you can download or stream from the website from that page. Also on that page are links to my author page, my author Twitter, and to an email, that email address that'll come right here to the show. So what I would like for you to do, if you enjoy listening to me try to do different voices while reading, if you enjoy the plot, the story, if there's anything that you don't like that you think I should do better, let me know that you're listening go out there uh tweet at me go out there uh, like my author page and send me a message leave a comment email me uh, using the email address out there on the website just basically let me know that you're there because really i'm doing this to well first of all to try and get my books out there in a more consumable fashion but then also to help people be able to uh, find it and listen to it, my books. If you really enjoyed this episode, this podcast, and you want to help me so that I can keep making more, the best thing you could do is help me grow my audience. Tell other people about the podcast. Share with them the website. Share with them the title of the podcast. Encourage them to get it. Downloaded on their device so that they can listen to it that is the best way you could help support me right now that's it for this week for this monday <laughs> come back next time hopefully it'll be friday of this week for another episode have a great week until then and i will see you then so to speak